I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka Sounds of Science. My two guests today are coming at the same issue from very different angles. Laura Gee, a colleague here at Charles River, lives with type 1 diabetes. She's coming at this chronic condition from a patient angle, daily monitoring and control. Jeffrey Millman, Associate Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Engineering at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, is coming from a research angle. The Millman Lab is striving to use cellular replacement therapy to potentially cure type 1 diabetes. They are here to bring these two perspectives together, and I'm glad they're both joining me today. Welcome, Jeffrey and Laura. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, only two flubs in my intro. I'm very proud of myself today. (laughs) So let's start with you, Laura. Can you tell us about your daily routine living with diabetes? Sure, Mary. My daily routine living with type 1 diabetes is anything but easy, but it is part of my life. And it has been since I was just seven years old. I wake up in the morning. I think about my day ahead. And I start planning. From the minute I wake up, I think about what am I going to eat for breakfast? What time will I work out? And all of these things sound like very small, but when you live with diabetes, it is something that really affects everything I do. For Mm -hmm. example, when when I come to thinking about what I'm going to have for breakfast, I have to think about how much insulin I need, what my current blood sugar is, Mm -hmm. and really just, you know, what I'm going to be doing after I have breakfast. There are many different aspects of a daily routine living with diabetes that must be considered no matter what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I can see how the stress of that might add up over time. Like even the rock has a cheat day and you can't really do that uh, living with type 1 diabetes, right? (laughs) Well, uh, (laughs) there are days, for example, okay, let's take a great example. We have Christmas coming and -hmm. there is no way that I'm going to go through Christmas without having some homemade goodness, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, So of course, to me, that's a little bit more of a cheat because it's not something I would normally do. I usually don't eat a lot of sweets, but around mm-hmm. the holidays, they exist. So for me, having a cheat day just means having an extra big bolus of insulin mm-hmm. to help control my blood sugars. Yeah, it still takes planning. It's not just uh, something that can be overtly spontaneous. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it all comes down to planning. So Jeffrey, what is your experience with speaking with patients? Are there any questions that you have for Laura? Yeah, one of the things that uh, I didn't really realize about what it's like like to live with diabetes is is the day to day and having to to think about it and this concept of uh, you can't take a, a a break from from type one diabetes might be the plan like with what was just discussed here uh, but you can't just completely forget about it on any given day mm-hmm. and so I guess I, I'd be really interested in hearing from Laura what it would feel like, what what it would mean for you if there was a true cure or a functional cure for for diabetes where you wouldn't need to think about the disease on a a day-to-day basis anymore? Honestly, it would be a dream come true. And it's such a big dream and something that I can't even imagine it. Like, I can't imagine not having a day where I don't have to think about, you know, all those little things that I do right now. So to me, it would just... It would be a feeling I would not even be able to describe. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how it would feel. Yeah, I think we can, probably Jeff and I can imagine it, but we can't really appreciate what that feeling would be like. Right, yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's that's maybe one of the key takeaways here for uh, members of the of the audience who um, uh, don't have to, to to live with this disease is from my again my experience speaking with patients it it, it takes over your life uh, at least not, not takes over your life but at least a major component of your day to day life you just can't you can't stop thinking about it and also especially if you have a uh, if you're a parent with a, a child with type one diabetes it's uh, that kind of angst and, and fear can, can be amplified much more because it's your own child that is living with it, which is really what motivates the work that, that I do and other scientists in, in, in the field to be working in this space, because we uh, all realize how impactful it would be for patients if we were to come up with an actual functional cure for diabetes. Yeah. And uh, just so that people, in case they don't know the difference, the type 1 diabetes is the kind that you were born with as opposed to type 2 or gestational, which might be more environmental? It could be a little bit maybe more nuanced than that. So type 1, some people aren't necessarily born with it, but a lot of people develop it in childhood. But that Mm -hmm. isn't true for everybody. There is a significant portion of people with type 1 diabetes that actually don't have it in adulthood. But the underlying cause of type 1 diabetes is a autoimmune attack where the immune system has failed to recognize the insulin cells that are found in, in the pancreas as self and mistakenly attack and destroy those cells, meaning that the body is no longer able to produce insulin. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is in contrast with type 2 diabetes, which is, I mean, there's a lot of nuances here, but typically is associated with obesity and insulin resistance, where essentially that the beta cells end up having to work too hard in order to meet the metabolic needs of the patient and just can't keep up with how much insulin the, uh, the patient needs. But so in the case of type 2 diabetes, uh, oftentimes this can be managed with things like diet or taking drugs to increase the body's sensitivity to insulin. Uh, for type 1 diabetes, that doesn't work because there just isn't any significant amounts of insulin being produced here. Uh, no amount of dieting is going to manage diabetes. And the only real way of managing type 1 diabetes is insulin injections. Mm-hmm. And you have to monitor your blood sugar to make sure that you're not taking too much insulin as well as not having enough. Correct. It's very much a difficulty here. It's the balance. It's not just maintaining a high level of a, a drug. So it's effective, which is maybe how you would think about uh, treating other other diseases. It is a balancing act here where your blood sugar being too high or too low is both very, um, very dangerous to you. So before we get into your research, uh, Jeff, Laura, I understand from browsing your online presence that you like to share about life with diabetes and healthy recipes and fitness tips, things like that. Why is it important for you to get that information out there? I do really love to share about living with diabetes and recipes and things like that because it's so reassuring for me as a person to be able to see how other people that live with diabetes are living. For example, uh, as a diabetic, quite often we feel insecure. We are worried if we're doing the right thing. Uh, you know, we're wondering, you know, how, you know, just how we fit in and are we okay? Little things like that because we, we just really want to do a good job. Most of us do anyway. <laughs> and by sharing little glimpses of my life and maybe some recipes I've tried that I've enjoyed that had a nice low glycemic index that didn't skyrocket my blood sugars, for example, I feel like I'm contributing a little bit and also allowing people that might be a little bit more quiet or unsure 
to be able to see into my life a little bit and just understand and, and know that they're okay too. They're, we're all in it together. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So Jeffrey, let's get into it. How did your research come about? Where did it start? Yeah, so I actually got into this uh, research uh, through a, a little bit of a different path than, than many people who are motivated to do research in, in diabetes. I, I was actually um, doing my PhD in, out of all things, chemical engineering. So I wasn't really focused on, on biology, let alone um, regenerative medicine for, for, for diabetes. And towards the end of my PhD, I, I was fortunate to have my the lab I was in uh, get a research grant from JDRF, which is the largest private funder of type 1 diabetes research in the world. And, and, and through that, and the, uh, the patients and the um, uh, scientists who, who are working the space that, that I got to meet through it, it really showed me kind of a whole new area of research that I wasn't really aware of being uh, from a engineering background. And by speaking with them and learning about the field, I started to see how my kind of different perspective of science could approach the problems that were facing the field in kind of a, a new and, and creative way. And so once I got done with my PhD, I decided to completely change the trajectory of my career and training to be dedicated to coming up with a functional cure for diabetes. And, and, and since then, I have been working in this space now for, for over a decade and you know have been really focused on the, the use of stem cells for the study and treatment of diabetes, particularly as a, a source of replacement cells that could potentially be transplanted into patients to mean that they wouldn't have to inject themselves with insulin anymore. That's really funny that you come from a chemical engineering background because Laura, essentially you're running chemical tests on yourself every day. Every day. It's uh, every day is another <laughs> experiment, really. Yeah, absolutely. You're a chemist as well. You know, you can eat like the same thing five days in a row. You can do the same activities. You can have every single day exactly the same on paper. Mm-hmm. But the way the body reacts every single day, it could be a little bit different. So it is yeah. every day is another experiment. And that's definitely how the cells can can behave as as well. And I think it's where the kind of chemical engineering mentality really intersects and synergizes well with the the stem cell biology that that goes on here. Essentially, the the way that um, I have been approaching the problem of how to make these insulin-secreting cells at the end of our manufacturing process is. I treat it like a chemical reaction, like in chemical engineering, the way we usually talk about things is that you have starting chemicals, it's a chemical A, uh, you may go and create one, two, three, four, maybe more uh, types of chemical compounds uh, before you finally get to the um, kind of final chemical that you're wanting to uh, derive here. And think about each of these as like separate stages. So you have mm-hmm. stage one, you go from chemical A to chemical B, stage two, you go from chemical B to chemical C, and you, you do them in a kind of serialized fashion to have the final chemical that you want there. So basically what I've been trying to do um, for, for the last 10 years is apply that sort of mentality, uh, but instead of having it just be chemicals, um, having the chemicals be in, in the final product to be cells, that we have stem cells that if we stick them into somebody's body, they're not really going to do anything. Um, and figure out what are the correct intermediate cell types we have to make before we actually get to the, the final product here, which is pancreatic and secreting beta cells. Okay, wow. So how does the treatment actually work, the cellular replacement therapy, which is a mouthful, by the way? Yeah, there's a lot of other terminology that we, we could use for that. That's <laughs> fine. To do. I can deal uh, with it. <laughs> 
In terms of the problem of controlling blood sugar levels in patients with type 1 diabetes, ultimately, this is an issue of there just not being enough healthy insulin-secreting beta cells in the patient's body anymore. I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. that these cells are mostly lost due to a autoimmune attack. And so the basic procedure here is, um, can we manufacture these cells artificially in a lab at a large enough scale so that we would have enough replacement cells that could be transplanted back into the patient so that these exogenous artificial manufactured cells can basically replace the function that has been lost in the patient's endogenous beta cells. And we refer to this collectively as cell replacement therapy. So the very first step of the process is what we refer to as germ layer specification. That's basically what kind of broad category of, a, of cell is the stem cell going to, uh, going to be called? Uh, the type of cell that we want to make and in this instance to be able to make the insulin beta cells they're called uh, endodermal cells uh, definitive endoderm in, in particular and so we have uh, particular cues mostly nodal signaling and width signaling for, for people who uh, who care about those things that instruct the stem cells to go from a cell that can become any cell type found in the body to only becoming cell types that come from definitive endoderm mm -hmm. and so so i mentioned that the pancreas co comes from there but also the, uh, the intestines, the liver, the lungs come from that germ layer as well. But once the cells decide to become a endoderm cell, they can no longer become brain or nerve or skin or heart or blood or muscle or the, any of the other cell types that come from the, uh, from the other germ layers. So basically we went from any cell type being possible to now basically only one third of the cell types uh, in the body uh, being possible. And we basically repeat that exercise through six distinct stages where we go from any cell type being possible to, to be produced from, from the stem cells all the way to just having beta cells and, and a few other pancreatic cell types as well being present at the end of the manufacturing process. So again, this is all done with soluble cues, like proteins and chemicals there. It can be done at a fairly large scale where we're able to manufacture a few uh, billion of these cells at a time. And uh, really the, the hope here is that with uh, with these manufactured cells, uh, we would take probably about maybe half a billion or one billion of these cells uh, and to transplant them into, into patients. And as long as those cells survive and have access to, to the blood, they should be able to perform their function of sensing sugar levels in the blood and secreting a sufficient amount of insulin in order to keep the blood sugar levels at a normal set point, even after a uh, meal has been consumed by the recipient. And the cells can come from donors, right? They don't necessarily have to be the patient's own cells? Right. So we, we look at both um, options here that we, we have done work where we have taken either uh, blood cells or skin cells from patients with uh, type 1 diabetes or some other forms of diabetes we study as well in, in, in the lab. And then we can reprogram these cells into the, the stem cells that we need to uh, start off the process. And so these are, these are a special type of stem cell that are called um, IPS cells or induced pluripotent uh, stem cells. So these cells, again, have the ability to become any cell type found in, in the body, and then we can give them our six-stage recipe for converting them over into the insulin-secreting beta cells. 
Alternatively, you can use cells that are derived from a donor or um, make beta cells and transplant those in, into patients as well. And that has the advantage from a kind of a, a manufacturing perspective. It's a lot easier and, and, and cheaper um, to take one donor cell line and make all the replacement cells that you'd want to generate uh, and use from it uh, for, for you know the hundreds of thousands, millions of patients that you'd want to transplant that into, as opposed to having to uh, derive uh, individual IPS lines from each uh, potential patient, mm-hmm. make the beta cells from them and put them back in, in, into there. But we're, we're pretty open to, to both concepts as being a way to go forward with this. So I understand you have successfully done this in mice. I saw some some news headlines recently about your lab. Uh, how has that gone so far? Yeah, so we, we've had... Um, uh, for, for, for many years now, we've, we've uh, published our initial uh, protocol for uh, making these cells and uh, a lot of various uh, refinements to the process uh, that have all uh, worked very well in mouse models and, and kind of the current generation, um, like the current like 2021 versions of, of the protocol, as you can imagine, work a lot better than the prior uh, reports that, that we had published. In, in terms of, of being able to rapidly reverse diabetes in, in the mice and being able to maintain control of blood sugar in, in these mice for essentially the, the entire remaining lifespan of the mice. But one thing as well that I, I don't know, if we, I don't think we had a chance to talk about this when we were chatting before the recording started, but the original uh, technology that I helped to develop for this has actually gone into patients now. And so this is back when I was a, a postdoc at uh, Harvard University, starting off working with this. And I was one of the first authors and inventors of the um, publication that came out of Harvard in, in 2014, mm-hmm. uh, kind of showing the, the, the first significant report of being able to, to, to make these cells um, at all. And again, showed it to work well in, in mice. Since then, that technology has been licensed and Vertex Pharmaceuticals is conducting a phase one clinical trial with these cells. And they actually released their results for the first recipient of these cells maybe about a a month ago, showing that the first recipient who received a half dose of these cells is uh, almost completely off of insulin. His insulin requirement has been reduced by by 91%, and he overall is doing quite well and has avoided any severe negative complications with this yet. And it's also maybe most importantly for him, because he had a lot of problems with this before the the, the transplant, has avoided uh, complications due to um, hypoglycemia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's amazing. So, I mean, my yeah, my next question was, what are some of the next steps to bring this research to the next level? But now it's kind of in the hands of the uh, you know, of the pharmaceutical company. And also it just has to kind of go through the regular scheduled drug approval process at this point. For that version of, of the technology, that that's definitely uh, correct. But there's definitely a lot more work that needs to be done in order mm-hmm. for this to be a, a, a true functional cure that can be deployed widespread in order to, you know, help uh, over 1 million people living with type 1 diabetes in, in the U.S. and beyond, of course. Yeah. So the, the biggest one that I am thinking about, though a lot of other people in the field are as well, is um, the issue of the immune system. And so mm-hmm. what the Vertex clinical trials are doing in order to prevent their their transplants from being rejected is that they are giving the the patients immunosuppressant drugs, which mm-hmm. are something that nobody ever wants to take. They uh, come with their own risk uh, of complications that for 
many people who are living with type 1 diabetes probably would not be worth uh, getting off of uh, insulin therapy for. There are a certain category of uh, people with di type 1 diabetes for which uh, that can make a lot of sense for. And, and like I said, this uh, first recipient had a lot of problems uh, controlling his, his diabetes and had been hospitalized quite a bit due to complications for receiving the um, uh, cells in the, uh, in the Vertex clinical trial. But I and everybody else who are working in this space really want this to be a much more widespread uh, therapy available to, to basically anybody. And mm -hmm. the biggest... the big elephant in the room that we have to address for this is the immune system. So how can we uh, deliver these cells into recipients in a way that the cells will not be destroyed by the immune system, but the patient also doesn't need to take uh, immunosuppressant drugs? Mm -hmm. and, and that's proven to be a, a very hard challenge to, to, to overcome. Uh, a lot of groups are focused on trying to coat the manufactured and screening cells with uh, various types of uh, materials that will basically physically shield them from the, uh, the the immune system. And there has been some success in that, and I, I've actually published on, on that myself, but it seems to have problems scaling to work effectively in a full-grown adult with uh, diabetes. In other mm -hmm. words, it works well in mice, but doesn't seem to really scale to humans. And so gotcha. the, the, kind, of the other, kind of the next thing that people are, are looking at, and that I personally have a lot of enthusiasm for, um, is this idea of using uh, CRISPR gene editing to genetically modify the cells to be immunovasive. So basically mm -hmm. for the immune system to, to be able to tolerate the cells and not reject the cells, either due to the autoimmunity or due to them being from a different donor. This is pure speculation from a non-scientist, but COVID has proven really good at evading the immune system. Could you maybe use their its uh, defense mechanisms as part of the process? Well, it's funny that you, that you uh, say that. I don't know about COVID itself, but I'll, I'll, the approach that people are taking in the field is to look at other systems that are out there and seeing how they normally avoid the, the immune system um, and then trying to just basically um, hijack that uh, <laughs> in, a, uh, in a cell type that it's not usually applicable for. Uh, and so I guess two main kind of um, examples we can give for, for that would be um, how do uh, cancer cells evade the, the immune system? Mm -hmm. um, and there's um, you know, certain uh, surface proteins that are expressed on, on cancer cells like PDL1 that help it to, to avoid destruction by, by the immune system. Or the, another example that I've heard people are uh, employing right now is how, how are fetuses uh, in utero tolerated and not rejected by mm -hmm. the uh, mother's immune system. Mm -hmm. there's, there's, several, there's several layers of protection there, but there's certain HLAs that are expressed by the fetal material in order to, to avoid being rejected by the immune system. So in other words, the, the COVID idea uh, is it, not too far-fetched in terms of how <laughs> scientists are trying to approach this problem. And we've, we've seen success with this kind of concept of trying to take known biological systems and understanding how it works in nature and then applying it to translating it into actual uh, biomedical needs. And this is mm -hmm. where CRISPR came from, for example. CRISPR-Cas9 is a defense mechanism of cells, but it so happens to be really good at editing DNA. And now it's a <laughs> extremely common tool used in, in biomedical research and is being you know looked at for therapy as well. So, Laura, do you keep on, on top of diabetes research? What do you think of the lab's work? 
I do try and I say try because there's always <laughs> something new and it's just, it's so exciting. Uh, what Jeff is talking about sounds super cool and wow, I, I, <laughs> I look forward to the day. <laughs> yeah, imagine just like an off-the-shelf product. But, you know, speaking of that, besides the immune system, I imagine that the other problem with, you know, that type of future is scalability and literally manufacturing plants that can make these cells at a scale that would be needed by patients. Yeah, and that's that's another really big, big challenge as well. So we have achieved a decent degree of scale, but I think new advancements need to be made more from a biotechnology angle in order to really scale it to, you know, to produce cells for even a, any significant fraction of the number of people with, with type 1 diabetes. Uh, but even like five years ago, um, there wasn't really much like of a need to focus on scalability manufacturing because it, the first reports of the cells had come out and there hadn't been enough time for people to try to reproduce those, those results. Now we know that it's real. The technology is here right now. And now biotech companies are starting to take it seriously and are starting to uh, think about these very practical questions, such as how are we going to make a million doses of, uh, of this therapy? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, this is a running theme in some of the other episodes is that the science always precedes the infrastructure, you know, just because Nikola Tesla or Edison or whoever invented a way to power things with electricity doesn't mean that the next day there were power lines sprung up all over the world. You get One has to kind of come before the other and infrastructure always comes after. That's, I think it's a really, a really good analogy. And again, I think it really just shows that how exciting of a space this is and how fast things have progress over the last uh, over the last few years. So before we wrap it up, um, do you guys have any questions for each other? Hmm, I'm just thinking, Jeff, <laughs> let's say you did cure diabetes. <laughs> How would that make you feel? And what do you see the cure doing for, I guess, the nation? Big question. <laughs> <laughs> That might be a little bit above my pay grade, that's <laughs> one. Uh, but I'll, I'll do the best that I can. I mean, I fully expect to know how I will feel because I fully expect to see it in my lifetime just because of how fast this has evolved and how well it is working. So maybe I'll give you my true response to it once it actually happens. But I guess I would speculate, of course, that it, it would be amazingly fulfilling. I mean, I, I really, I changed my entire career trajectory to dedicate myself to this problem because I saw how important it would be for, for many people. Thank you both so much for joining me for this. This has been a really, really thrilling conversation for me. Um, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Mary. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs>